if you have been around for a bit in the world of rare books, then you will certainly remember A.B. Bookman's Weekly, a magazine that was begun in the late 1940s as a vehicle for advertising used in rare books, both books wanted and books for sale. Saul M. Malkin founded A.B. Bookman's Weekly in 1948, and with his wife, Marianne O'Brien Malkin, edited it for a generation. In its glory days, A.B. printed and sent out nearly 11,000 copies per week. And the magazine's editorial content was widely read by a great many persons in the overlapping worlds of rare books, used and rare, research librarianship, and book collecting. A.B.'s front matter consisted of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians, and it included a column written by Jacob Blank of Bibliography of American Literature fame, providing news, musings, and gossip about the trade. The Malkins sold A.B. in the early 1970s, and it continued in business under the direction of Jacob Chernovsky until 1999, when it ceased operation, done in by its failure to adapt to the internet. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of Saul Malkin's contributions to the antiquarian book trade. Michael Winship gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography under Bookhart's press auspices at Columbia University in December 1985. In time for Saul Malkin to congratulate him on his performance, though Malkin himself was too ill to attend, Indeed, Saul Malkin died in March of 1986, a few months after Winship had delivered the lecture. Marianne Malkin continued to support both the lecture and its parent organization after Saul's death. She attended a number of rare book school courses in the late 1980s at Columbia University, and beginning in 1992, she was almost always able to come for Charlottesville for several days to preside over the annual Malcolm Lecture here, the first of which was delivered in December 1992 by Robert Darnton. She was in attendance on, on July 27th last year when Richard Wendorf gave the 20th annual Malcolm Lecture in this room, and she was very much her old self then. But she told me while she was in Charlottesville that she was now 92 years old and that that was enough. She was beginning to hurt all the time, she said. As it happened, she returned to New York City on February 29, July, and three days later she died quietly in her apartment. Marianne usually got what she wanted. During her lifetime, she was Rare Book School's biggest financial supporter, and her generosity extended beyond her death. She left Rare Book School half her residual estate an amount we expect will total more than three quarters of a million dollars. Please drink a mental toast to Marianne O'Brien Malkin now in a real one at the reception that follows this lecture. The roster of speakers giving us all M and Marianne O'Brien Malkin lecture over the past two years includes Greer Allen, Nicholas Barker, William Barlow, Robert Darnton, Miriam Foote, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldschmidt, Selby Kiefer, Catherine Kreis Lieb, Paul Needham, William Reese, Kenneth Rendell, 
Bernard M. Rosenthal, Anthony Rhoda, Justin G. Schiller, Roger Stoddard, Thomas Tansel, Richard Wendorf, and Marjorie Wynn. Quite a list, I hope you'll agree. A small parenthesis. An English-speaking French acquaintance of mine once reported that on a business trip to New York City, he took an afternoon off to do some shopping in Greenwich Village, where he came upon a men's clothing store with a sign in the window that read, Ici on parle français. So he went in, and he asked a sales clerk in French, who spoke French here. The clerk smirked, and putting his hand on his chest, replied, Je. <laughs> it is a great pleasure to introduce tonight's lecturer, giving the 2006 R.M. and Mary Ann O'Brien Malkin Lecturer in Bibliography on the Bibliographical State of the Nation, 2006. Je. <laughs> Let me begin by drawing your attention to the exhibition here in the Dome Room Cases. Bound to Please, American Cloth Bindings, 1830-1910. A large show, there are nearly 200 books on display in the room. The curator of the exhibition is Vincent Golden, curator of newspapers at the American Antiquarian Society and a longtime occasional rare book school staff member. For the past half dozen years, he has acted as Sue Allen's teaching assistant, helping with her celebrated rare book school course, Publishers Book Bindings, 1830-1910. More recently, he has begun acting in a similar capacity for Jan Storm von Leuven's course, Introduction to the History of Bookbinding. In choosing books for the show, Curator Golden drew from the rare book school collection of about 5,000 19th and early 20th century cloth bindings many of them formerly housed in the projecting cases here in the dome room, but now on display in the floor-to-ceiling wall cases in very elegant surroundings, the newly refurbished McGregor room in Alderman Library. I hope you had a chance to take a look at Bound to Please tonight before the lecture began. There are a lot of books to see. At Rare Book School, we've been buying cloth bindings for two decades, jump-started by a $1,000 gift for this purpose from the late James Davis. And let me tell you, in 1986, $1,000 bought a lot of 19th and early 20th century cloth-bound American books, especially if you were more interested in their bindings than you were in their subjects. In the first case of the exhibition, to the right of the staircases, you will find a list of the book dealers who sold us books presently on display in this room, as well as lists of the individual and institutional donors of other books on display here. A number of the dealers and a number of the donors, and there is significant overlap between the two lists, are in the room tonight. Many thanks to them all. The great jazz musician Dizzy Gillespie once said of Louis Armstrong, No him, no me. The same may be said of the Rare Book School binding collection as regards the used and antiquarian book trade. We're greatly in their debt. These are good times for the purchasers of used and rare books. The internet has enormously facilitated the purchase of books, both new and old, for organizations like RBS, 
not only via online electronic mar marketplaces such as A Books, Antipo, Biblio, Bibliophile Books and Collectibles, Juice Books, Elephant Books, ILAB, IOBA Books, Mary Magnum, Tom Folio, Use Book Central, and various other uh, uh, electronic venues, and also and especially eBay. Rare Book School annually spends about $30,000 on books, and almost all of it as a result of internet sales. Ten years ago, this was not the case. Excuse me for trying to teach middle-aged foxes how to suck eggs, but I want to remind the younger members of this audience that buying a specific used or antiquarian book before the internet came along tended to be a much more complicated business than it is now. You had a notebook containing a list of particular titles or editions that you were looking for, and you carried the notebook with you whenever you expected to visit a bookshop. Or, better still, you reduced your most wanted desiderata to both sides of a single sheet or two of typing paper. I'm not going to try to describe what typing paper is. <laughs> you reduced your list to a single sheet or two of typing paper by eliminating all margins and by producing it using the smallest available typewriter or type size. You then folded your list up tight and tucked it into your wallet or purse because you never knew when you were going to come across a place where you could buy old books. Inside the used bookshop, you went to the sections you knew were most likely to have the books you were looking for. In my case, when hunting for books for Rare Book School, the most promising sections were history, literature, art, and books on books. The biography of, say, William Hogarth, for example, might be in any of these sections. A former student of mine was once in a bookshop that shelved a copy of The Voyages of Magellan under yachting. <laughs> and Paul Banks used to swear that he once found a book entitled Sex After Sixty, housed in a section called Skilled Arts and Crafts. <laughs> you never knew where printed library catalogs or books on medieval manuscripts were going to be shelved, and sometimes you had to rely on serendipity to find books on subjects like typefounding or papermaking or handwriting. Once you came upon a title of the book you were looking for, you had to weigh the book's price and its condition against the number of years you had been looking for a copy. The book you uh, just found might not be as good a copy physically as you wanted, or it might be extensively underlined, or it might lack its dust jacket, or it might be too expensive. But here it was, and how long would it be before you were likely to find another copy of the book? The wife of a bibliographical friend of mine once surveyed the books in my apartment at home during a dinner party. I suspect it's an alternative to suicide because of the conversation. And after doing so, she observed, you guys have all the same books. And you all have them in the same order on your shelves. She had dusted a good many of them. One of the heartthrobs about buying used and antiquarian books in the old days was finding a second or third or fourth copy of a book that you had been looking for for years but had recently found and purchased a copy of. You didn't need another copy, but you were tempted to buy it for the sheer pleasure of it. And maybe let your desbib type friends and relations know that you had a copy for sale at the price you paid for it. I used to haunt bookshops. 
looking for the books on my list. Since the coming of the internet, I now buy most of the books I need, both professionally and personally, online, more easily, faster, and at cheaper prices than what I would typically have paid for them pre-internet. Short term, at least, the present book buying environment is very favorable for purchasers, but much less favorable for sellers. The price of used books in virtually all fields, it seems to me, has declined significantly against the cost of living during the past decade. And the price of relatively expensive books, three-figure books, which shows you what a piker I am, has more recently shown similarly significant signs of erosion. Everyone concerned with old books has had a similar experience on the internet. A great many books that we once thought were scarce turn out to be nothing of the kind. Open bookshops continue to close and go internet, a circumstance that is lucky to have an important long-range impact on the world of book collecting. Monday through Saturday, 9 to 6 p.m., used in antiquarian bookshops or incubators for collectors. Reading grounds for persons with a bit of money in their pocket who wander in and buy a book or two and who then want more. Most medium-sized and large cities used to have such open shops. These days, even, or perhaps especially, in places like New York City, they are disappearing rapidly. To some extent, antiquarian book fairs have filled the gap left by the diminishing number of open shops. But in the United States, at least, antiquarian book fairs are probably on their way out as well. The annual New York City ABAA book fair is still important. The big money continues to show up, in part because the fair is held at the 67th Street Armory on Park Avenue, the site of some of the big New York City antiques fairs. The place is a dump. But to the locals, it's our dump. The LA Book Fair is holding up. Angelinos like to shop. The San Francisco Book Fair is fun, but primarily because of the location. Boston is fading. Further down market, carriage trade dealers used to visit local and regional book fairs and country booksellers in order to buy books for stock but they're now just as likely or more so to buy them on the internet or via email in private transactions. I recently spoke on this subject to William Reese, the Haven-based dealer in Americana. Another way of saying that is the dealer in Americana based in New Haven. It's his opinion that if there are more than three or four available copies of the same used or rare book online, that the price of all of them will tend to sink. The only way to sell a copy of such books, he says, is to have either the cheapest copy or the best copy. There is little customer loyalty at this level. A further difficulty from the seller's point of view is that there are a great many used and antiquarian books that are likely to sell only to institutional customers. But academic and other libraries aren't buying two and three figure used and rare books the way they used to. This market is drying up quite quickly. Admittedly, the further up the market you go, the less change you find from the old days. At the top of the antiquarian book market, the importance of dealer-customer relations remains paramount. Book collectors with deep pockets still like to buy big books in person from dealers they know and with whom they've done business before. More than ever, collectors are buying big, excuse me, more than ever collectors buying big books need deep pockets. Iconic books, first editions of 
the, the origin of species or Copernicus or Vesalius, the Shakespeare first folio, and so on, are increasingly expensive against the market. At less stratospheric levels, the very nature of book collecting has changed with the coming of the internet. I want everything. Book collectors are far rarer than they used to be. That is to say, collectors who want every state of every printing of every edition of a particular author or subject. Assembling such collections used to take years or even decades. Now, often, all it takes is money because you can go online and find so many copies of so many printings, of so many editions, of so many books. The result is that much of what we used to call book collecting is now better described as shopping. You want it, you buy it, like shoots. Much of the fun has gone out of book collecting as a result, and the completest book collectors have tended to change their collecting habits and interests. They are now more likely, I think, to go in for what Kenneth Rendell calls romantic collecting. A bit of this, a bit of that, a book here, a poster there, or a manuscript, or a broadside, by many authors on any number of subjects that happen to strike their fancy at the moment. What book collectors collect is changing. If you had no Latin in school, for instance, you're less likely than you used to be to collect books in Latin. This is not to say that there is less collecting going on than there used to be. I see no diminishing of the collecting instinct now or in the future. I suspect that there are fewer book collectors these days who are forming collections in the expectation of eventually turning them over to their alma mater. Collectors are less sure than they used to be that their old schools will actually want their book collectors, their book collections, and they may wonder whether or not their books will be properly looked after over the long haul in an institutional setting. Among such institutions, I do not include the University of Virginia. Christian DuPont and Catherine Morgan would, I am sure, be very glad to talk to you about your book collections and their possible future home at the university. Indeed, many of the really major academic institutions in the United States are enthusiastically continuing to develop their collections of rare books and manuscripts. Though staff time is increasingly limited, particularly for filling in collections at lower price level by purchase. It generally takes just as long to buy a cheap book as it does to buy an expensive one, and indeed sometimes longer, because the expensive one tends to be more completely described. And my sense is that an increasing number of institutions are buying fewer books but more expensive ones because of sharply decreased staff time available for reading catalogs, visiting bookshops, and surfing the internet. The late Herman W. Liebert, first librarian of the Bonnicky Rare Book and Manuscript Library, used to say that Yale's Sterling Library Stack Tower was his best bookseller. Older library books continued to move from open to closed stack areas within institutions in this country, and often into special collections departments, a trend that will surely continue. It's my prediction that a great many research libraries in the United States will eventually establish departments of printed books comprising their present rare book collections plus much of what is currently in circulating stack collections. Predicting the future is easy. The hard part is not predicting what, but predicting when. 
I think that in academe we'll begin to see the disappearance of pre-1945 printed books in circulating collections within the next 15 or 20 years. Special collections will grow, but rare book staffing levels will be stretched thinner and thinner. A couple of years ago, I got an email message from a friend of mine who works in one of our great national libraries. He wrote that he had to have a piece of information that could only be provided by someone who worked in a particular Ivy League rare book department. Letters, email messages, and finally phone calls had all gone unanswered. And did I have any advice on what he could do next? He had to have the piece of information. He was desperate. I found a colleague at the silent library and told him about the problem. The colleague said that he'd find the answer himself and pass it along. I apologized to him for being a nuisance, but then added something snide to the effect that there at least used to be 50 persons working in his department. Surely one of them could open the mail? He replied that yes, there were still 50 persons working in the department, but that I should remember that there were 50 persons working in the department 30 years ago, too, when there are half as many books and manuscripts in the collection. Rare book librarians work hard, in part because the history of the book as an academic discipline is flourishing, both in this country and abroad, as are related fields such as the history of print culture, reading and reader reception, archives and archival management, the contemporary book arts, and the study of communications media. There are now formal graduate programs in book history and print culture in the United Kingdom at the universities of London, Birmingham, and Edinburgh, in the Netherlands at Leiden University and the University of Amsterdam, in Canada at the University of Toronto, and in this country at Drew University, Florida State, Notre Dame, Iowa, Wisconsin, and elsewhere. There continues to be a need for rare book and special collections librarians, especially those willing to work long hours for low pay. And it's good to be able to report that Dr. Stam's rare book program at Long Island University's Palmer School of Library and Information Science is flourishing. The University of Virginia's rare book school continues to play a major role in the training of rare book and research librarians. Rare book schools, I should say, since in addition to the rare book school, there are now parallel schools in France, at Lyon, New Zealand, at Dunedin, and Wellington, Australia, and Melbourne, uh, Southern California in Los Angeles and beginning in 2007 in London. Our rare book school, the mother of them all, is currently offering courses not only in Charlottesville, but also in New York, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C. In 2007, we'll be offering courses in one place or another in January, June, July, August, September, and October. Note the title of my speech tonight, State of the Bibliographical Nation. Old-timers will recognize this title for years, both during our Columbia days and throughout most of the 1990s at UVA. I used regularly to give an evening lecture during rare school sessions with State of the Bibliographical Nation in the title. And widely criticized I was, too, for doing so, since my speeches tended to be almost entirely focused on the State of Rare Book School rather than that of the nation. I would like to continue this tradition long enough now to report that the Rare Book School is flourishing, in no small part because of its excellent 
current full-time staff, including Barbara Heritage, curator of Red Book School Collection, William Ingram, assistant director for programs, Carolyn Cates Engel, our office manager, and Kenneth Giza, assistant to the director. Bill Ingram will be leaving us next month to enter the master's program at the University of Illinois Graduate School of Library and Information Science. Both he and his computer and system skills will be badly missed. In 2006, Rare Book School mounted 34 five-day courses in 11 different sessions in its four locations, including four new courses on Islamic manuscripts, on the Stationers' Company of London, on the history of book illustration, and a general introduction to, pale to paleography. The fifth course returned to our curriculum after an absence of 10 years on developing collections of African-American materials. There are 44 members of the active rare book school faculty. 27 of them, more than half, have taught in the school for at least 10 years. A remarkable average for a school that has just completed its 23rd year. They certainly don't teach here for the money. The across-the-board rare book school faculty honorarium is $2,000 per five-day course. Counting in a day for traveling at each end of the course, Faculty members thus receive less than $300 a day to teach in a book school, and while in Charlottesville, they pay for their own housing. The book school tuition income provides less than half of the school's annual budget. An additional 20% is provided by contributions from the 700-member Friends of Rare Book School, and the rest is provided by the University of Virginia, primarily in the form of my salary and fringe benefits and those of Rare Book School's office manager, Carolyn K. Zangle. I cannot imagine a better or more generous space of operations for Rare Book School than UVA, and we are enormously grateful, as always, both to President John Castine and to University Librarian Karen Wittenborg and her staff for their unflagging support over the years. Rare Book School is in the final stages of becoming an affiliated foundation of the University of Virginia a move that will regularize our presently rather vague relationship with UVA while allowing us to retain our independence. Karen Wittenborg, already on the RBS Board of Directors, will shortly become the UVA Board of Visitors' official representative to our board, and Don Fry in the audience tonight will become John Castine's representative on the board as part of this process. I plan to step down as director of Redbrook School in July 2009. President Castine has agreed to hire another director at the university professor level to replace me, and we've begun to be on the lookout for possible successors. In order to further ensure the future of the school and its collections, the Railroad School Board of Directors has begun its first ever endowment campaign with the intention of bringing the school's endowment up to $2 million. It's presently at about 150000 Here's our pitch. Research libraries and related institutions today acquire a large variety of electronic and other non-print materials, but they continue to have an obligation to look after the books and manuscripts already in their collections. The internet offers great possibilities for increasing the use of rare materials by making scanned versions broadly available, but we must not deprive the future of the past future generations may read electronic copies of Leaves of Grass, but they cannot properly study its history 
unless we have preserved copies of the original edition of Walt Whitman's book and the manuscripts that stand behind them. For the past two decades, Rare Book School has provided educational opportunities for antiquarian booksellers, collectors, conservators and binders, curators, rare book and research librarians, scholars, teachers, and others professionally or avocationally concerned with the history of books, manuscripts, and related subjects. The school has become the nation's principal institution in the field, an essential part of the bedrock of humanities, research libraries, and other cultural heritage institutions. Income from the new Rare Book School endowment funds will support courses, expanding the range of Rare Book School courses and the subject fields they cover and increasing the number of locations where they offered, collections, purchasing books, prints, examples of printing surfaces, and other materials for use in present and future Rare Book School courses, and developing the school's website to provide more information about these collections and the courses and subject areas they cover, scholarships, increasing the diversity of the railroad school's student body by providing scholarships both for those working with traditionally underserved groups and for those in junior positions for whom institutional funding is not available. And personnel, increasing the honoraria of railroad school faculty members and developing permanent professional staff positions for the support of the school's programs and collections. In June of this year, NEH awarded Red Book School a $333,000 challenge grant to help us meet our endowment goal of $2 million. With $800,000 on its way for Marianne Malkin's bequest and a $250,000 pledge from the Red Book School board itself, we are already nearly three-quarters on our way to our $2 million goal. I'm particularly grateful to the Red Book School board for its generous pledge. 250000 is a lot of money for a 10-person board, the majority of whom are academics or librarians. Present Rare School Board of Trustees include the following. Uh, our president is Hans Tausig, a New York City-based book collector and a student of the history of the book. He has himself taken 14 Rare School courses. Vice President is Peter Hudrick, senior producer of King World's Productions TV News Magazine Inside Edition and the director of all of our Rare Book School videotapes from punch to printing type, how to operate a book, and anatomy of a book format. Our secretary is Beverly Lynch, professor in the Graduate School of Library and Information Studies at UCLA, former president of the American Library Association and founding director of California Rare Book School. Our treasurer is William Barlow, tax accountant based in the Bay Area, former president of the Bibliographical Society of America, serious book collector, Rivers School faculty member since 1993. The board members include William Bice, a partner in Davidson, Dawson & Clark, the New York City law firm, book collector, president of the Keith Shelley Association of America, former president of the Grolier Club. Ellen Dunlap, President and Chief Executive Officer of the American Antiquarian Society. Don Fry, Charlottesville-based independent consultant, President Castine's representative on our board. Robert Gross, James L. and Shirley A. Draper, Professor of Early American History at the University of Connecticut. 
co-editor of the 19th century volume of the multi-volume history of the book in America. Kenneth W. Rendell, manuscript and rare book dealer based in Boston, the gallery on Madison Avenue in New York City. Alice Schreier, director of the Special Collections Research Center at the University of Chicago and a rare book school faculty member since 1986. And Karen Wittenborg, university librarian at UVA, the UVA Board of Visitors rep on the rare book school board. And Jean. Early next week, we'll be mailing out an invitation to all 700 friends of Rare Book School, inviting them to contribute to the endowment campaign, and we hope to meet our goal well before I leave the Rare Book School director's chair in 2009. So what is the state of the bibliographical nation in 2006? Walter Cronkite used to end the old CBS television program with a rhetorical question, what sort of day was it? which he then immediately answered, a day like all days, filled with those events that alter and illuminate our times, and you were there. Many of you have, like me, been there during the past several stirring decades, the period when the history of the book and its related fields and disciplines began to take shape as a separate entity and to give birth to an ever-increasing collection of societies, newsletters, conferences, and journals. The fish don't notice the water in their tank until the water level begins to drop. We're a lot more self-conscious about the history of the book than we used to be because we are surrounded by so many new alternatives to print on paper. Perhaps precisely because of this fact, overall, the state of the bibliographical nation in 2006 is, I think, pretty good. Thank you for listening. Please join me at the reception about to begin in the Alderman Library, first floor staff lounge.